Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Todd W. Rice, MD, MSC. He's the lead author of an article from the May 2011 issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Randomized Trial of Initial Trophic versus Full Energy Enteral Nutrition in Mechanically Ventilated Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure. Dr. Rice is an assistant professor of medicine at Vanderbilt University School of Medicine in Nashville, Tennessee. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 39, Number 5. Again, thank you so much, Dr. Rice, for joining us on the podcast. Um, so for the listeners, I wanted to sort of paint the picture a little bit in case they're listening to this and haven't read your article. The focus here is that there is consensus. One of the few areas that there is consensus in critical care is that Nutrition is good for the critically ill patient in general. Enteral versus parenteral nutrition appears to be better if the patient can tolerate it. But one of the many controversies in critical care medicine is how much nutrition. And uh, again, to quote a little bit about the beginning of your manuscript before I hand it over to you for discussion, was intuitively one might think about it either way, that more nutrition might be better because you're getting more energy into the patient and they can fight their infection better and recover and get off the ventilator. But as you point out, and I'm going to quote your paper here, full enteral feedings remain one of the biggest risk factors for aspiration, which represents the leading cause of pneumonia in the intensive care unit and significantly increases morbidity and mortality. Hence, some clinicians use low-dose trickle or trophic feeds between 10 and 30 milliliters per hour early in the course of critical illness to maintain gut integrity and function while decreasing complications. So with that as a little bit of background for the reader, why don't uh, I let you take it from there and talk about your study. So um, we did this study because, as you commented, there isn't really any consensus data as to how much we should feed uh, patients that are uh, on the ventilator and require the ventilator. So we looked at trying to compare kind of two ends of the spectrum, uh, a little bit of food, uh, and when we actually consented patients' families for this, we called it kind of the sick on bed, eating a little bit of soup for the day uh, versus the we know how much energy you need normally in a day and we're going to try and provide that amount of energy for the day. Uh, you know, lots of uh, nutrition people hung their hat on the the fact that uh, because malnutrition is associated with worse outcomes, feeding the critically ill patients must mean that we get better outcomes, despite the fact that there really were no data that, that showed that. And so we kind of viewed this as a way to try and test that. Uh, although we thought going in, our hypothesis was that the um, small volume trophic foods volume might do better because of the fact that there wouldn't be as many uh, complications such as vomiting and aspiration and, and those sorts of things from the trophic group. 
And so um, as, a, as a first step, you, had, um, you were able to get 200 patients total. It looks like, from what I could tell from the manuscript, there were 1,185 that met criteria, and it took a long time, to, or a relatively long time, to get all these patients. This was from 2003 to 2009. Do you want to talk a little bit about, uh, about that part? Sure. So we tried to, actually, when we designed it, make our inclusion criteria and exclusion criteria as broad as we could to cover you know, as many patients as we could with acute respiratory failure. And as we started doing this, we thought of patients, for example, patients that come in malnourished who maybe maybe aren't good candidates for the trophic group or, um, you know, patients that uh, have a disease that they're not going to survive even to the end of their hospitalization. Uh, and maybe we shouldn't study those people because they're not going to provide a signal. So once we put exclusions that we thought were reasonable, we ended up, like you said, enrolling about one out of every five or six patients that we thought were eligible for the study. Interestingly, when we went to consent families to get their loved ones to participate in the study, um, families have very rigid ideas about nutrition. And, you know, we thought we would have a hard time randomizing families because they would not want the small volume feeds. But in essence, we found that there were about an equal number of families that would say, you know, grandma was a really light eater, and we're not sure she'd do very well with that full feeding group. Um, and they were they were steadfast in their in their beliefs. So we had families that that would refuse to consent for their loved one based off of they they really wanted them in the low feeding group or the in the high feeding group without the flip of a coin randomization that they could have either one. And see, I, I, I mean, this is an incredibly fascinating point because you've got an area where we, as the average. Uh, practicing intensivists have more clinical equipoise than a lot of family members, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, completely. And, I mean, families, although there are families on both sides of the spectrum, when you get in with a, a family room, it becomes pretty obvious pretty quickly uh, the ones that have a belief one way or the other. You know, it, it went both ways. We were, we were surprised. We thought families would opt out because they didn't want to, they wouldn't, didn't want to be in the low feeding group. But it was almost 50-50 for not wanting to be in the low feeding group versus not wanting to be in the, the full feeding group. And it wasn't that they didn't want their loved one involved in research, but there were particular thoughts about which group you mean, just to make sure I understood you? Yeah, there were particular thoughts about how their loved one should be fed, yeah. Wow. Um, and, and interestingly, you know, our physicians upstairs have a somewhat hands-off approach to upstairs being in the ICU have a somewhat hands-off approach to the to the nutrition part in that they kind of start them but they're not so into it that they have to be at full feeds right away and some of them do it really slowly and so if you aren't in the study kind of how you got fed would depend on who was the attending for the day yet families were very reluctant to be randomized because that would mean that you know they get low feeds or high feeds well let me just summarize um, a couple of the groups and then let you um, sort of flesh things out a little bit so the big picture was there was a full energy group uh, where they were started at enteral nutrition at 25 milliliters per hour gastric residuals checked every six hours and the target as you point out is between 25 and 30 kilocalories per kilograms per day and then there was a trophic group where you started out at 10 milliliters per hour and left it there, right, for the, the same six days. Is that right? Correct. I thought these were very reasonable, uh, distinct groups. Was there a lot of controversy when they were originally deciding how to set up the two groups? Um, there was discussion on the 10 mil per hour group about how much exactly, you know, there's a belief that if you provide some nutrition 
to the to the intestine, you maintain intestinal villi structure and function, and you you get secretory enzymes. And there was some argument about how much exactly do you need uh, in order to provide that. We used some animal models of some pigs and some mice that suggested that was someplace in the 15% of your goal range. Um, and in doing that, we kind of backtracked to get to the 10 milliliters an hour. Interestingly, there was lots of discussion when we actually went to design this study about a starvation group, a no-feeds-at-all group. And we, I think, could have done that. We opted not to because, not knowing what we knew now, we thought families wouldn't consent to that at all. You know, we thought we'd have a really hard time going to families and say, we're not going to feed grandma for a week. Um, and families would just be like, what do you mean you're not feeding grandma? You know, we're not going to starve her. Once we got into it and these families, you know, there were families definitely out there that said, you know, Grandma wasn't a real big eater. We don't think she should get a lot of food. We realized that we probably could have done that arm and gotten people to consent. Well, and and I was going to talk about this in the end, but let me talk about it now because I work in a surgical ICU, and I would think that a surgical ICU, from what I could tell, this paper were two different medical ICUs. Is that Correct. right? Yeah, they're almost essentially all medical patients. There's a couple cardiac patients, uh, but they're all they're all medical. They're, there aren't any surgical patients. Because one of the big conundrums as a medically trained person working in a surgical ICU is the NPO diet of the surgeon, uh, who says because of an anastomosis or something similar, although the pendulum is swinging away from that, um, the NPO diet for one or two weeks with TPN. And I would think that, and maybe we can talk about it now, but, but the issue would be that group versus your trophic group would just be absolutely fascinating if you're not already doing research on that, I guess. Yeah, we aren't doing that group, although we've talked about that group specifically. And in fact, there's a, a letter to the editor in critical care medicine on this talking about uh, brain injury patients and how this relates to brain injury patients. And, you know, we don't, we don't know the answer to that because we didn't enroll brain injury patients. But there's certainly other populations, whether it's the surgical ICU, the trauma, uh, neuro sort of ICUs, where this is ripe for, for looking at this sort of thing, whether you want to even do trophic versus full energy in that group or, uh, you know, starting trophic versus this. You're, we're going to starve them because they're post-op for a week uh, and use TPN. I, I completely agree. It's Right, because that's the group where, where that's what one of the reasons I chose this is, is I will say to my surgeons, look, you know, there's new data coming out that I can start early enteral feeds on your patient with an anastomosis. Let me start trophic feeds. At least I'll be preventing breakdown of the intestinal lining. And one of the questions I had for you was, how did you decide on the six days or not? Because you, one might argue that as a, as a surgeon say, well, you know, let me have my anastomosis left alone for a few days and then start it versus the benefits of not having it break down. Right? You must have right. some thoughts on that. Yeah. So our six days came from the fact that when we looked at the data in our ICU, about half of our patients had an outcome by then. So they were either off the ventilator or they were deceased by six days. And so we recognized that that would, that would mean largely that our study, that there were going to be relatively few patients in our study that got to the full ramp up. Now, it turns out that some did, but it allowed us to um, kind of make that uh, distinction between the groups. In addition, at the time, although they've changed a little bit now, but at the time, the big societies said, and it was it was vague, but they said a patient could go about a week without food, and if they were going to be ventilated for about a week, then you know you should consider early enteral nutrition, you know, at some point in that. So that six days was kind of the about a week, and it allowed us a separation of our groups that that we knew was going to. I mean, you know, we, when you talk about the results of this. The fact is that you'll have a number of patients you can start on, if you're doing the trophic, you can start on 10 mils an hour that you're never going to ramp up. 
by the time you know that day six is there, they've either passed away or they're you know a vast majority of them will have been extubated and be able to hopefully eat on their own. And did you work closely with your um, dietitians, nutrition, helping to run the different uh, groups while they were receiving the nutrition? So our nutrition dietitians would come and on every patient, and they do this routinely anyway. On every patient, they would give us a goal rate um, based off of a you know a preferred tube feed and a goal rate. We then, when we randomized patients, we actually we used our bedside nurses to run uh, the actual protocol. So our nurses would run the 10 cc's an hour versus trying to get them up to uh, to full feeds, and our nurses did this protocol, this full feeding protocol, full energy protocol in even patients that weren't on our study. So this kind of came became routine for our ICU. Um, so they became very good at doing the kind of figure one full feeding. Right. That's what I was going to say. Your protocol. full feeding, uh, the target feeding protocol yeah. for figure one for people yeah. who are reading along. Right. And, and again, as we were going over in our ICU, and you mentioned in your manuscript, the issue of how large of a gastric residual is too large remains a controversy in critical care medicine. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, and it's interesting because people don't have a very good concept of what, you know, 200 milliliters or 200 cc's is. Uh, and so we asked, when we started this, we asked our nurses, because our nurses were a little hesitant with this 300 cc's, and we asked them how much volume was in a soda can, a Coke can. Um, and we got answers all over the map. But as you guys know, 12 ounces is 360 cc's. And so when we tell them that and say, so if you sit down and drink a, a soda can, you've put more than 300 cc's into your stomach, then they became a lot more receptive to um, this 300 cc residual volume as our threshold. I, I will say the one the one area we got a little pushback from them uh, until we got it up and running was that if you look at figure one, you'll notice on the left-hand side, you have to have two residuals above 300 cc's before we actually will hold your your tube feeds. There were some data before we started that suggested that 80% of patients that had an elevated residual volume, and they used 200 cc's, but uh, an elevated residual volume, when it was rechecked, even without doing anything to the tube feeds, adjusting the rates or anything, 80% of those patients never had a second one. Well, there was a when we went through this, looking at it for our own ICU, there was been some data published to not check them at all, yeah. and that there were no benef- there were no changes in outcome, if right. you'd like to comment. Yeah, we, we actually had that in our ICU before we started this. We didn't routinely check residual volumes. We didn't do that in this study because we didn't know the results going in, and we were afraid if the trophic group did better and we didn't check residual volumes that people would argue with us that we just were unsafely feeding the full feeding group by not checking residual volumes and just pouring food in even when none of it was going through and, and that. So we kind of put it in as a safety measure and a precaution to make sure that people wouldn't argue that you know we were... Uh, haphazard and reckless in the way that we were feeding these full feeding groups. But you're exactly right. There are a number of places now and even publications now that suggest that maybe uh, a residual volume uh, isn't that important. And specifically a residual volume by itself without any other signs of intolerance uh, may not mean mean a whole lot. So just for the sake of time, I'm going to briefly summarize what your primary endpoints were and some of your critical results and then let you make some comments. Okay. So your primary endpoints were, in a non-controversial way here, uh, ventilator-free days to day 28. You wanted to see if this was going to change the way or the time with which people were both alive and off the ventilator. Secondary endpoints, again, 28-day and hospital mortality, organ failure-free days, ICU-free days, hospital-free days. And then the other two that I think are 
exciting and fascinating are this GI intolerance and new infections. Um, and then let me just actually just take it to the results and then I'll let you comment. So this is where it gets a little a little confusing, but again, like I said before and, and said to you um, before the podcast, is this study reminded me of when I read a non-inferiority study looking at antibiotics and that the very fact, potentially, that it didn't seem to be worse to be using this trophic feeding method for the first six days in itself is very exciting. It's a, it's, I would consider it a positive outcome, that this is something you can discuss you know, with your team, with your fellows, to say, look, there is no reason to ramp up quickly. So you, you showed here that both groups received a similar duration of enteral nutrition, about five days. You were able to separate the groups, showing that the trophic group received on average uh, uh, about 16% versus 75% of the goal calories with a significant p-value, and that both groups had about 23, a median of 23 ventilator-free days and a median of 21 ICU-free days. No statistical significant difference there. And there was no difference in mortality uh, for the two groups statistically. Um, and although there was a trend towards decreased GI intolerance in the group that had the trophic feeds. And so why don't I let you uh, talk a little bit more in detail about that? Sure. So we um, we chose some of our endpoints because we thought they were clinically relevant, and we thought that uh, they would make people um, kind of take notice because that's what clinicians cared about. You know how how much people survive and how much they come off of the ventilator and how quickly they come off the ventilator with with or without other organ failures. Um, GI intolerances we chose because you know we thought that might be the factor that would cause the full energy group to do worse if they ended up doing worse. Um, and the new infections we chose for a couple of reasons. One is there are people that think that if you feed somebody that you prevent bacterial translocation and kind of this systemic inflammation and even bacteremia uh, from that. And also uh, from an aspiration standpoint, an aspiration pneumonia for the full feeding group. And so we kind of had both sides of it with that. The results were um, not entirely surprising to us, but only because we really went in with an open mind that we didn't know which of these was better, uh, and we wanted to test it. Uh, and you're right, it came out that uh, neither one of them turned out to be better. And when people read that, they think that you know that means that one is non-inferior to the other. And I, I would say that although we didn't do a specific non-inferiority test, I would say that neither of them was so much better that we, you know, there was a signal from uh, our groups. There were more GI intolerances in the full feeding group, uh, which really wasn't that surprising to uh, most people that uh, we talked to about it. If you feed people more, they have more intolerances. Those were largely elevated residual volumes. There was a little bit more diarrhea. You know, I mean, I'm not sure diarrhea is something that, in the overall scheme of things, hurts that many patients. But there was also more uh, elevated residual volumes, which, again, probably isn't that surprising. If you give them more uh, enteral food, they probably have higher residual volumes. There weren't any differences in actual aspiration or vomiting or regurgitation, again, suggesting that maybe residual volumes aren't the best marker of those um, outcomes. And, I mean, I have the same take that you do. I tell my nurses upstairs now that uh, we should start uh, enteral nutrition um, at least within the first 48-hour time window. And if they say, you know, how do you want to start it, I tell them start at 10 milliliters an hour, and we'll we'll ramp it up to full eventually over the next, you know, five or six days. But we don't have to have urgency to do it right now because as far as we know from these data, uh, that's not giving people better outcomes. 
the nurses upstairs really like it because from their standpoint, it's much easier to do the 10 milliliters an hour than it is to every six hours try and increase the rate and have to check residuals more frequently and worry about the high residuals and those sorts of things. For the most part, 10 cc's an hour, they turn it on and um, they're, they're done with it. So, so I, had a, I had a few questions. Thank you very much. So the issue of a bit of a disconnect between what you just said, where we do see patients where they can't tolerate it, versus what you saw here, where you had to look sort of harder than you thought you might have to really show that the gastric intolerance um, was was there. Do you believe that that is a factor of the size of your study, although you mentioned it was properly powered? Yeah. I, I, one of the things that, that surprised us a little bit were the fact that we had lower rates of intolerance than we we thought based on previous literature um, that would, we would have. Now, part of that, I think, is because we tolerated a lot, uh, higher residual volume than most people do. Uh, and, you know, all the previous data suggests that the most common GI intolerance is uh, elevated residual volume. We didn't see much aspiration and much vomiting. Now, we didn't do the fluorometric, you know, densometry little tubes, little ball things to look for. We essentially defined it as as the bedside nurse deciding that the patient had, had aspirated or regurgitated or, or thrown up and that sort of thing. And that may have underreported some of our rates. Right. Um, it, the same thing is actually true of our infection rates. You know, we, we defined an infection as the primary team, either either a new blood culture or a new culture result, or the primary team thought there was an infection and, and changed antibiotics. So if the primary team thought they were treating, for example, a VAP or a nosocomial infection, then we counted that as an infection, even if they didn't have positive culture stuff. And did you think that uh, potentially longer-term follow-up of these patients might show some of the differences that maybe 28 days wouldn't really show it? Or yeah, maybe. Sorry. No, you're, you're okay. Sorry, I interrupted you. Um, may, maybe. Um, you know, one of, the, one of the, the findings, although it's hard for me to stand behind it with much uh, confidence, was that the patients in the full group were more likely to go home without going to rehab first. And people that, that are still believers in full feeding suggest that that's because you maintain strength and you don't need to go home. I, I struggle with it a little bit because it wasn't a, a outcome that we set forth at the beginning that we were going to look at. It was data, they were data that we collected. And then when we ended up doing the analysis, we looked at it and found it, but it wasn't set out as one of our endpoints. So I'm not I don't know about that, but people say, and and they might be right, it's, a, it's an interesting hypothesis, that that's a, a signal that if you can find the patient that is in your ICU longer, early feeding may be more beneficial, and um, that if we looked at later outcomes, you know, may, and strength and things like that, maybe we would have seen a, a different signal in the in the full feeding group. Well, I mean, we're heading towards the end. Uh, again, for my own personal practice, the way I interpret this is to go back to my surgeons and say, look, there's recent data in medical patients that we may be getting as much benefit from nutrition by giving less early on, so let me do that on your patient, and we can get all the benefits of enteral nutrition without overloading the patient or increasing the risk of aspiration. Um, what kinds of things are you thinking about for the future given this? I, I hope this isn't the end of this kind of research. It's so important. Uh, no, this isn't the end. We've heard lots of things about um, protein and whether or not protein uh, separate from carbohydrates has an effect. 
So we'd love to look at kind of the trophic arm with protein supplementation versus just the trophic arm alone to see if, if that's uh, the answer. There's a study that just completing that I don't have a results of yet that is very similar to this one looking at, uh, again, trophic versus full in patients with lung injury that's actually going to be uh, a 1,000 patients, so it's actually going to be a huge study. Wow. Um, and we'll be able to do a ton of subgroup analyses in that based off of, you know, BMIs and how long you're in the ICU and those sorts of things. And then, we, you know, we'd like to do some additional work looking at some of these, you know, maybe less clinically relevant outcomes, but still relevant, such as strength and, you know, what it means from a patient's strength standpoint and, and rehab and those sorts of things uh, in, these, in these patients. And then the other area that's prime for research is does what we feed patients matter? Does the composition of the feeds uh, matter in, in patients? And, you know, we're looking at a number of different studies in, in trying to delineate, you know, what we should best be feeding uh, in addition to what the best amount is. Well, Dr. Rice, I will be uh, scouring the literature carefully and we'll tap you for a future podcast so we can get more data on this. Uh, it's such a big issue. Um, again, in medical ICUs and surgical ICUs, the issue of how much, when, when can you push, and when are we getting a benefit of giving less, potentially potentially decreasing infection versus more by giving more nutrition. I'm really glad uh, that we had a chance to speak with you today. We've been speaking today with Dr. Todd W. Rice. MDMSC from Vanderbilt University on his article that was published in May 2011 in Critical Care Medicine, Randomized Trial of Initial Trophic versus Full Energy Enteral Nutrition in Mechanically Ventilated Patients with Acute Respiratory Failure. Thank you again, Dr. Rice, for joining us. Thank you. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as access to over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Explore new frontiers in a city where great ideas take flight. Register for SCCM's 41st Critical Care Congress, which will take place February 4th to 8th, 2012, in Houston, Texas, USA. Houston provides the perfect setting to forge new connections and fuel innovation in the critical care community. The 41st Congress will focus on new and inventive solutions that dramatically improve the outcomes and lives of critically ill and injured patients worldwide. For more information or to register, visit www.sccm.org congress. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD of CCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.